Coming up next on Contemplate. Paul and Silas were content even when they were beaten. Even when they were in these tortuous stocks, they'd been violently beaten. And they're in the inner prison of Philippi. They were content, not because they were happy with their circumstances, but because their contentment was not tied to their circumstances. That was Pastor David Robinson from Axe Church in Camas, Washington. And this is Contemplate. I'm Ron Hagelgans. Thanks for being with us today for part nine in our series, Contentment in Christ. Contentment is a tough one. We all want to be content, and we all try everything to try and be content. But sadly for most of us, we just have a difficult time ever finding it. Well, today, Pastor David is going to show us some powerful examples of what real contentment looks like. So let's dive in. We'll begin in Acts 16, verse 19. So please get out your Bible. And here's Pastor David with today's episode, recorded live at Acts Church. So, most people want to be rich. Um, I know that everybody would say, no, no, I don't care about that. But the fact is, is that most people do. Most people would like to not have to worry about uh, money and things and possessions. They'd like to be stable. And and today, I'm going to tell all of you how to be rich. All right. Now you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, health and wealth church. I didn't know we were going that direction. We're not. Don't worry. Um, I'm I'm neither going to be preaching any heresy today, nor am I going to sell you Amway. Okay? We're, We're... we're not going that direction, just hang on. Um, we'll, we'll get to where we're going. But we're going to study a passage in Acts today, and you're going to see what I mean about being rich, which you can probably guess is not going to have to do with having a lot of money. Um, but last time we, we left Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke in Philippi. So those of you who were here for the last message on Acts, they're in Philippi. They had, we had seen Lydia and her household come to the Lord. And then we saw these guys kind of in the city doing their thing, ministering, preaching the word of God, uh, just telling people about Jesus Christ. And this girl starts following them, and she starts screaming stuff out about them. You know, these, these guys follow the most high God, and they're trying to tell you the way to heaven, whatever, but not necessarily in a nice way. She has this spirit of divination, and Paul eventually, uh, through the power of Christ, casts this spirit out. And then we saw them get sort of seized and brought to the marketplace. And so I want to start there um, at, at that verse. They, they took them. Remember, they seized them because there were slave owners of this girl. She was a slave. And her, the spirit of divination, they, they used this girl to make money by doing basically fortune telling. So she's doing that for them. And when Paul casts out the demon in the power of the Holy Spirit, this girl's no longer a fortune teller. And so these guys have lost their profit, and so they're very angry because they didn't have the money that they thought they were going to have from this girl who was a fortune teller. And so they grab them, they take them to what's called the agora. The, the Greek word just means the marketplace, just means the place where people gather. This is the word where we get agoraphobia, which is the fear of the marketplace, or people who have a hard time going and being around a lot of people. Um, same word, and that's what it's referring to. They brought them to the authorities. Let's start in verse 19 of chapter 16, which is where we ended last time, and then we'll read verse 20. It says this, But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace 
to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. Okay. So they bring them to these guys in the city. The word used here for magistrates is a word is the word strategos. And, and I'll tell you why I'm telling you this in a minute. But it's equivalent to the Latin word duoviri. The duoviri were the two men. That's what it literally means, the two men. And these two men would have been magistrates that would have been appointed in different Roman colonies. Now, the reason I'm telling you this uh, and going through Greek and Latin and whatever is because there's a guy named Helmut Kester who actually died last year. He was a, a German-American scholar at Harvard, uh, Harvard Divinity School, in the New Testament. And he says this. He says that this designation, okay, Luke's use of this particular word in Scripture is important because it shows it's correct. It's the correct word to use. And it reveals Luke's good understanding of the local situation. Luke knew what was going on because Luke, of course, we know, was there at this point. And Luke wrote accurately about what would have been happening in Philippi at this moment. And the reason that we bring this up, and I often bring these types of things up, these little details, is so that we never get lost in legend. This is not a fairy tale. This is a historical account. And when guys like Kester from Harvard say, hey, Luke was accurate historically here, as many people over many, many centuries have said, Luke is accurate, one of the greatest historians of the ancient world. We can never let Bible stories become that thing on the flannel graph, become that thing that's kind of wild and, and, and whatever. And you've got to keep in mind that they're real. All of it is real. Them being thrown before the magistrates and demons being cast out of people and people being healed. It's all real. It's all accurate. It's all history. And we never want to lose that. So, so let's stay, stay in with that always when we're going through the book of Acts. All right. Now, I'm not sure because they take Paul and Silas. Remember, Paul's the one who, who speaks to this spirit and casts it out um, through the power of Christ. But Silas was also taken, but who wasn't taken were Timothy and Luke, who were also there, assumedly. I don't know why they weren't taken. I don't know. There are some theories, okay? Maybe they just kind of like, when they saw them, right, taking these guys, they just sort of, you know, scooted away, which is what I would have done. Um, but it also may be because we know Luke was a Greek. Timothy's father was Greek, as were Paul and Silas are Jews. There's a lot of racial, religious bigotry among the Romans. And so it may have been that these guys took Paul and Silas because they were Jewish, okay? I don't know. Um, but we will go to the next, next passage here, the next verses, and I'm going to read number 21. It says, and they teach customs. Remember, they said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Okay, so you've got these guys who have now mentioned these are Jews who are breaking our laws. Remember, these slave masters weren't mad about them preaching Jesus, which is what they're accusing these guys of. Oh, they're preaching these new gods. That's not what they were mad about, remember? They were mad because they lost the profit from their slave girl who was fortune-telling. But they figured that they could rile up the crowd. Remember, they're in the agora. They're in the marketplace where all the people are. And the magistrates, by saying these are Jewish men who are trying to break our Roman law. So they're bringing this national pride, this sort of racial and religious pride up in order to get what they want, which is for Paul and Silas to get in big trouble. That's what they care about. That's why they're mentioning this. Um, they didn't talk about what they were really angry their loss of profit, they talked about that. And to be fair, Paul and Silas were breaking the law. In Cicero's treatise on laws, 
there was a law that said, let no one have private gods, neither new gods nor strange gods, unless publicly acknowledged. So it was technically illegal for Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and other Christians to be talking about Jesus Christ because this was not an officially recognized religion sanctioned by the Roman government. Okay, they would have seen this as an offshoot of Judaism, as bringing new gods. We'll see that later also. He's talking about new gods. Okay, this was illegal. Now, illegal, but not generally enforced. Not generally enforced, but they did want to enforce it this time because they figured if they could rile up enough anti-Jewish sentiment in these guys, they might be able to get them in trouble. So let's see what happens. 22 through 24. It says, Then the multitude rose up together against them. All the people that are in the Agora, they're all getting upset because he's like, oh, look at these Jewish guys. They're against our culture. They're against our laws. They're coming in here, and they're causing trouble. So the people get riled up. And the magistrates, the duoviri, tore off their clothes, not their own clothes, but Paul and Silas's clothes, and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So, it worked. They got people riled up, and they decided to do something to these guys. They, they got angry. The people got angry. I'm guessing the magistrates were probably at some level influenced by the fact that the crowd clearly wanted blood here. And so they did. They tore their clothes off, and they beat these guys down. And FYI, this was not a little spanking with a paddle. That's not what this is. Let me, let me sort of set the stage for you of what this would have looked like. Um, we've studied that these magistrates are called the duoviri. Now, the duoviri which is the, the two, the two leaders here, these guys would have had some folks with them called lictors. And lictors were basically bodyguards, okay? The Roman bodyguards. And uh, the duoviri, from my research, would have had two each, probably. So you got two duoviri, follow me here with the kind of setup, two duoviri, and each one of them has two bodyguards. Now these guys, their job was to go around everywhere that these magistrates went, everywhere, to their house, to the baths, to the marketplace, to wherever, and what they would do is basically move the crowds out of the way, protect these people. They were bodyguards, and, and because of that, they would have been big, strong guys, really big, strong guys, and so that's who they have. They had these guys with them, um, and these guys would have carried something called the fascias. The fascias were basically a bundle of rods with an axe head in it, and it symbolized the power of Rome, power and the authority of Rome, the power and authority of these magistrates to carry out this type of a sentence on these guys. I've got a picture of what one of these guys would have looked like, sort of, that's not a photograph, that's a drawing. Um, that's what one of these guys would have probably looked at. And you can actually find that thing, the fascists. We actually use it a lot in the U.S. as symbolism. I've got a few pictures here. One is in the chamber, the house chamber. You can see on the walls, I've got arrows pointed to them. Those are fascists on the wall. Okay. Also on the mercury dime on the back of that, you've got one right there in the middle. And there's a statue of George Washington where he's leaning on the fascists. So when you go, now you know something new. When you go to Washington, D.C. or something like that, and you see this bundle of sticks with the axe hanging out, you can be like, oh, that's the Roman fascists. And the lictors carried those and so on. People will think you're really smart. All right. So you've got that. All right. But the point is it was, it was to scare people. We've got the power of Rome. We've got the power of Rome. And 
These guys, when the, when the magistrates say, beat them, you're talking about two, four, in this case, four big old guys with rods who are beating the living snot out of Paul and Silas. Let me tell you, um, there's, a, there's a description from a guy named Cicero uh, about a beating that happened. This was in a, a book by Clinton Arnold on Acts, and he, and he describes one of these types of beatings. This is what he says. Cicero says he was beaten. The guy's name was Gaius Servilius. If you want to feel bad for somebody with a name, that's the guy who's being beaten. Cicero says he was beaten till finally the senior lictor, Sextius, took the butt end of the stick and began to strike the poor man violently across the eyes so that he fell helpless to the ground, his face and eyes streaming with blood. Even then, his assailants continued to rain blows on his prostrate body. Such was the treatment he then received and having been carried off for dead at the time, very soon afterward, he died. This is what this is going on. This is not, okay, give these guys a couple lashes. Give these guys a couple lashes. This is the, the real deal. It would have been horrific and violent. In fact, the verse, verse 23 says, when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them in prison. Many stripes. So I just want you to understand what these guys have been through. They would have been, you're talking about a crowd cheering on some big, strong guys. They're not saying, oh, have mercy on them. They're, you know what they're cheering. They're saying, beat these guys down. Beat these guys down. So that's what's happening. Then they take them, fasten their feet in the stocks in the inner prison. And the inner prison was generally held for serious criminals and people of very low social status. So the point was from the magistrates here is take these guys and humiliate them. Put them in the inner prison and fasten them, their feet in these stocks. And of course, these stocks were basically a torture device. They would be down on your legs, on your feet, so that you couldn't even move around. You couldn't adjust yourself to get comfortable. And if any of you have ever been beaten severely with rods, my guess is there's a lot of adjusting that needs to go on to be comfortable. So they're basically tortured in the inner prison after being beaten. And uh, that's where we find Paul and Silas. And why? Because they were preaching Christ. Because they were doing what the Lord had called them to do. And as they did what the Lord called them to do, as all the health and wealth preachers would tell you, they got rich and happy and healthy and wealthy, right? Nope. Nope. They got arrested and beaten and humiliated, tortured, and put in prison. And that's where they are. That's where they are. And so my guess is for most people we would think they must have been really mad at God. Really upset. Hey, God, I'm serving you. I'm doing what you called me to do. And here I am. I'm in prison. I'm in intense, incredible pain. And all because I decided to follow you, maybe I should just go home and give this thing up. Well, let's see what they did. Verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Okay. They're praying and singing. When I come to church on Sunday, if I have a slight case of the sniffles, I don't feel like singing. I mean, if I'm slightly uncomfortable, I'm just kind of like, I don't feel like singing, singing today. I'm, you know, I'm upset that I'm sick and whatever. I mean, I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine how your mindset, while you're sitting in the darkness of the inner prison in incredible pain, how you could want to sing 
Pray and sing to the Lord. Show praise and all that kind of thing. I can't understand. If any of you have been in a car accident or some major body trauma like that, you have some idea of what these guys probably felt like or had the severe flu or something where your body is just jacked up. The first thought in your mind is not, hey, let's sing a song. It's just not the way we think. It's just not the way we think. But they did. They did. And the other prisoners were listening this was a testimony. This was a testimony. Even though, even though you slay me, yet I will follow you, yet I will praise you. That's a, that's a pretty powerful testimony. What, what's the biggest miracle of this little section of Scripture? Is it that the Holy Spirit cast this spirit of divination out of this girl? Or is it the fact that Paul and Silas were able to pray and sing when they were in such dire straits? I actually think it's the second one. I actually find that to be more miraculous, more miraculous than a lot of the miracles we read in Scripture, because I just don't see that in human behavior. It's not natural. It has to be miraculous. It has to be from the Holy Spirit. We would never act that way unless the Holy Spirit was empowering us. There's something going on with these guys. They're full of joy. They're singing praises to God that they were counted worthy to suffer for him. And somehow that made them joyful. Somehow that made them joyful. Somehow they had so much love for the other prisoners there that it was more important to show the joy that they had in their heart and their spirit than it was to complain about the pain that they were in. Let's play this out for a second for you. You go on a mission trip. And, you know, you fly there and whatever. You got your little head pillow and you get down to the thing. And you're taking your Facebook pictures of all the kids that you're with and check out my Insta, my mission trip and whatever. You're buying souvenirs. And all of a sudden, some girl comes out and starts yelling a bunch of stuff. You cast a spirit out of her. And all of a sudden, you're beaten down and put in prison. We don't think about that happening. But that's what, they were just on a mission trip. That's what they were. Paul wasn't looking for this to happen any more than you would be. And yet, as believers today, we can't even imagine this scenario. But you have to imagine that that's what it was like. They were going along doing their own thing. Doing their own thing. And this happened to them. They found themselves, themselves, their selves. They said that in Tennessee, so their selves. They found themselves in a terrible situation. And they had a choice. Paul was like this. I am here now. I have a couple choices. I can either be angry at God, mad, allow confusion to reign in my heart, discontent with my situation, or I can have joy. I can be happy that I'm breathing still, that I'm getting to serve the Lord, and that Jesus is going to be so pleased with the dedication, the commitment I've shown to him here. I have stored something up for myself. I have stored up rewards for myself, and I can be happy about that. Now, how does this apply to you, and how does this apply to me? Here's how. Paul is showing us what it looks like to be rich. He's showing us. Now, some of you are thinking, now, hang on a second. If being rich means being arrested, beaten, tortured, and put in prison, I'm not sure that's something I'm interested in. You said everybody wants to do it, but I'm not sure that's what I want. Or maybe as the great philosopher Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride says, that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. Um, <laughs> right? 
Maybe the word has a different meaning, the word rich, than, than what I'm saying. Let's, let's go to the definition. Merriam-Webster, it says this, definition of rich. Having abundant possessions and especially material wealth. That's what we usually think about when we think of rich. So generally, we think the word has to do with having a lot of possessions. But there's nothing necessarily special about having a lot of possessions. For instance, if I have lots and lots and lots of cats, would you consider me to be rich? Okay. Watch out for that one. Okay. Probably not. We don't generally think that's even a good thing, necessarily, depending on how many cats we're talking about. Um, but we wouldn't necessarily call that rich. Or, or what if I just had lots and lots of rotten eggs? I've got lots of possessions, but they're not very useful. We wouldn't think of that as rich. So it's not the possessions, just the number of possessions. There's something else about being rich besides just that. I think that we think this. Being rich... Wealth, all these things, are something that we think of as bringing joy. That somehow they bring joy. Most people would not necessarily be joyful with lots of cats or rotten eggs. Um, but maybe cars, dollar bills, maybe, maybe uh, diplomas on the wall, maybe uh, the best spouse, maybe whatever it is. Whatever is in your heart that you think of, that you think would make you rich, maybe that's what you would call it, but somehow at the end of the day, we sort of define rich and wealth as, hey, I'm able to be content all the time. A rich person has more contentment. That's why people envy wealth. They envy it for that reason. On Christmas morning, I used to get a lot of presents from my aunts, my uncles, and grandparents, whatever. And I would open these presents up, and I would have lots of stuff. Some of the stuff I would break within like the first hour, right? I just, you know, I, it was cheap or I was rough with it or whatever. Some of the stuff lasted longer, but nothing lasted very long to where I was content with that stuff. In fact, if I went into Christmas morning and I was not content, I never came out of Christmas morning and all of a sudden was content because I had more stuff. Because that's not the way contentment works, right? Stuff is not what brings contentment. Stuff is not what, at the end of the day, we really care about. Because none of these things, okay, and I want you to listen carefully because this is important. Because you know this intellectually, but, but we don't live like this. So listen, none of these things, including but not limited to, as attorneys would say, none of these things, including but not limited to money, stuff, and even relationships, even really important relationships, none of these things, no thing and no person is going to bring you the true contentment that you seek. None of them. Not unless you're already content in the Lord. None of this stuff. Paul and Silas were content even when they were beaten. Even when they were in these tortuous stocks, they'd been violently beaten. And they're in the inner prison of Philippi. They were content, not because they were happy with their circumstances, but because their contentment was not tied to their circumstances. Their contentment was not tied to their circumstances. Paul writes a letter to the Philippian church. That's where he is. He's in Philippi. He writes a letter to the Philippian church. That's a really clever name. It's called Philippians. All right. So in this letter, he says this. The Holy Spirit through Paul writes this thing. This is uh, chapter 4, verses 9 through 13, if you have your Bible with you. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me. The Philippians saw this with Paul. So it's important that you understand that. 
because that's who he's writing to. These do, and the God of peace will be with you, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state, whatever my circumstances, right, whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned to both be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He says, look, you saw me. I was there. I was in Philippi. You saw what happened to me. You saw how I lived. And one of the things he did, one of the ways he lived when he was in Philippi was he was beaten, tortured, humiliated, and singing hymns. That was Pastor David Robinson from Axe Church in Camas, Washington, with part nine in our series, Contentment in Christ, here on Contemplate. Wouldn't you love to have that kind of contentment in your life? Well, you can. It comes by giving your life to Jesus and accepting Him as your Lord and Savior. And if you still have questions or we can help you make that life-changing decision for Christ, come see us at Axe Church this Sunday morning. We'd love to meet you and help you know the contentment that Pastor David was talking about today. Get directions and all the info you need at axcamus.org. That's axcamus.org. Or call us at 360 885 9,000. That's 360-885-9000. Hope to meet you this Sunday. I'm Ron Hagel again. Thanks for listening today, and you want to be right here next time as Pastor David continues this look at contentment in Christ here on Contemplate. Contemplate.